Successful people learn how to make their mind work for them. I'm David Nagel, and this is the Successful Mind Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Successful Mind Podcast. Today, my guest is Hillary Walsh. She is an award-winning, nationally renowned immigration attorney. She's a published author and a law professor at one of the top law schools in the nation, and she's a wildly successful entrepreneur. Her mission in life is to help others put meaning to their painful past and then start living the life that they once couldn't even imagine which sounds pretty cool to me. Hillary, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you. I'm great. How are you? Doing absolutely fantastic. What, uh, you have an amazing story. I mean, you came from a very interesting past. Um, You've become very successful. You have a beautiful family. How were you able to make that transition? Tell us where you started. Like, where did your life start? What what was going on back, back then when you were a kid? Back then when I was a kid, I grew up in rural Kansas. So in the middle, I I jokingly, but very seriously grew up in the middle of a field. Um, The other day I was showing some of my employees who were remote (laughs) a Google Maps um, view of where I grew up, like literally the dirt road that I grew up on. And they were kind of chuckling because they said, when you said that it was the middle of a field, I I didn't believe you, but it it really is. It's wide (laughs) open spaces. And I grew up to a mom with a mom and dad who um, I'm one of four children, the second in line. And my parents got married right out of high school. My mom was still 17. And over time, my dad developed a very serious alcohol problem and um, kind of messed around a little bit with gambling as well. I don't know that I, I can't diagnose anybody, but it definitely seemed like it was a, a great thrill for him. And it became a problem because we didn't have any money. So we moved from Arkansas, then we moved to Kansas in the middle of the night when I was in kindergarten. And it was a overall very, it was a very dangerous environment um, a lot of times because of the dynamic between my parents and the fact that my mom felt so unsafe. Um, And then over time, um, I I came to realize how abused I was. I was put into foster care because of some severe physical abuse. The emotional abuse was worse and eventually got put into foster care for a short stint. Um, I screwed around. So did they, did somebody come take you out of the house or did your parents put you there? I was taken away by the state. I was taken out of the home. Um, So somebody reported the abuse then. Yeah, I was beaten severely and sent to school the next day. And I had all the markings all over me. I tried to lie to the principal when he questioned me about it. And they had a duty to report it to the state. It was really interesting looking back. In the principal's office, my mom came in. I was there. And the principal said, well, I'm, I'm sure she deserved it, but I have a duty to report it to the state. Wow. This was just in two, I was, this was 20 years ago. I'm 35 now. It happened when I was 15. So I guess this was in the year 2000 and um, those types of things still happen. Right. And it's really remarkable that, that even when we think that we're so we've, we've moved into a different era, how these are still things that are very normal in my heart of hearts. I don't know that my mom and dad, um, I think that they, my mom has told me even recently um, in the past, probably two or three years 
that she felt like I deserved it. And so this was just something that was ingrained in the cycle that was my family, this, this abuse cycle. Part of it was learned, and then, and then you just repeat it. And right. those are patterns that are really dangerous to continue. I was put in foster care. I skipped play practice and went to Sonic with friends instead and got reported as a runaway. And there I found myself in lockup for runaway bad kids. Wow. And, and this is at 15. This is when I was 15. So, and I had never really, I'd never cheated on a test. Never really. I mean, I had, had forged my mom's signature on my clarinet um, practice card a few times. <laughs> you hardened criminal you. <laughs> exactly. It's like nobody wanted to hear that anyway. I was not a talented um, clarinetist. Um, and it was, it was, you know, the rock bottom moment for me was the first time I engaged with the legal system, which was walking into the little courthouse in my hometown of a couple thousand people and knowing that it was the first time I was going to see my parents again after being taken from the home. Okay. And when you're 15 and you have a lot of serious marks all over your body from outward trauma and you know that the inward trauma is worse and you know you're going to go see those people who you want them to love you so much and yet you're so scared of them in walks we're about to go into what they said was a meeting with the judge i had no idea who a judge was what a judge was you know i have only from tv and at that point i was so sheltered i was watching little house on the prairie still right so i had no idea what was going on um so did you, well, let me ask you a question really quick. Did, at, this, at this time when this was going on, did you know that you were in an abusive environment at this time of your life? No. You didn't know? I, okay. I right. thought that I had screwed up and this is, this is what I had deserved. Okay. But this is what happens. And I didn't know that even getting put into foster care was as severe as it was until I was in law school taking a family law class and learned all the steps you have to go through in order to take a child from the home because the right to parent your kids the way you want to parent them is a really big deal in American law and in our value system. And that's the first time that it, I mean, I remember going home and really being shaken up, just reading those, those cases, talking about this little boy or this little girl being taken from the home and whether or not the, the government, the state had a right to step in and tell someone how to raise their kids and how severe it is to take a child and put them in foster care. And that's when I started to realize it must have been really, really bad because the person who was experiencing it expected it. You know, the 15-year-old expected this type of treatment. Okay. You know? So I'm sure. in the courtroom. Um, I'm, in the, I'm in the waiting room, essentially, outside the courtroom, waiting to see my parents for the first time since all of this had happened. And mind you, when you go into foster care for abuse, they strip you down and they take pictures of your naked body and you're all bruised up. And it's a very humiliating experience, but the state has to cover its tracks, right? The state has to show that they're, they are. And so, you know, like looking back, I know that those, those pictures are somewhere and that someone has seen them. And it's, um, I had, I, there was no way I could get consent to that because I was just give, I was just doing what everyone told me to do. But in walks this guy before we go into the hearing and says, he's in a suit and he says, it's time to go in. And so we walk in and we sit down and my parents are at a table with their lawyer, who is a common, like the lawyer in our little town. And then we sit at this other table and there's this bench and then a judge comes in and we stand and we sit down. And this guy who'd come in with me in the suit, come to find out he was my lawyer, my state appointed lawyer. Okay. And the judge asks him, 
does your client want to be reunified with her parents? And at the time I was still very, I mean, it was really fresh and I didn't want to go back home yet. I was still really scared of the environment and everything that had kind of come to a head leading to being put in foster care. But I wasn't about to say that because my mom and dad are sitting right there. And he says, yes, she's ready for family reunification. Did they ask you? They did not ask me. Interesting. And, you know, years later in the immigration court context, the same type of thing happens. I at least understood what was going on. But so many times the judge asks the lawyer, on behalf of your client, what do you want to say for them? And the client has no voice. And so it has been, you know, people often ask me how, why immigration? I don't really have any immigration in my family, you know, Um, other than my father-in-law, who's a Canadian, who's a Canadian, American, American, Canadian um, now, but he's Sean's dad, you know? Yeah. I think that I was just really drawn to this area because I saw something in myself and that's what gives so much meaning to pain. Right. Right. Why don't, why don't the kids have a voice at that age or, or in that situation? I don't know that it's age specific, but what I'm finding really curious is that, so they, they, they strip you down, you're naked. I mean, this, like you said, it has, it's an unbelievable humiliating experience. It has to also be quite scary. I would imagine. Um, they appoint you an attorney. You don't have a meeting with this attorney. They just take you from your in-processing to the courtroom. Why, why are they not asking you what you want to do? Do you know the reason to this? This was a failure on that attorney's part. It was a failure on the attorney's part. Yeah. They absolutely should have talked to me beforehand and advised me of what was going on. Um, and then if I was unable to make a decision, then they could have had someone appointed to speak on my behalf. I was, you know, 15 years old. I was really well-spoken and absolutely could have said, I think that right now I'm not ready to go home. In any event, no one asked. And that was definitely, when we look back on rock bottom moments, that's definitely a rock bottom for me. It was, it was the, one of the first of many times I thought I would just rather die. I just would rather kill myself than have to endure this. Right. How, how were you coping with this at the time? I think, you know, music and um, the arts are a really great coping mechanism. At, fortunately, at 15, I wasn't into any riffraff, um, you know, because as you get older, you learn to cope with other things because you can go to the liquor store and buy an escape bottle. Right. <laughs> but 15, so there was, I, no negative, there was no negative coping at this age? No, there was no negative coping, no drugs, no alcohol. I think a little bit later, I think the first time I drank alcohol was 16, but it wasn't because I was trying to escape from anything. I was just trying to fit in. Okay. There really was no negative coping. I also think that it wasn't, it didn't just happen one day. I'd had 15 years to prepare for that moment. Yes. Yeah. So it, you know, I mean, child abuse is a horrific thing. The fact that this attorney did this, um, Here's a question. When you're sitting there with that attorney, does the judge see the pictures of you naked? Does the judge get to see those pictures? Do they present that as part of the case? I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. Is it, 
I just wonder what the reason is. I mean, I've talked to I've talked to people about this over the years, and I've heard, you know, the the system is just swamped with cases. The worst cases are the ones that get the most attention. I had a client one time who had uh, uh, a couple of kids with an abusive mom, and the father was desperately trying to get custody of the children, and he was going to attorney after attorney after attorney, and they all told him the same thing. They said, "Listen, every day." These judges see kids that are raped, burned with cigarettes, beaten, bruised, uh, tortured in all different kinds of ways. And they're going to look at your case and they're going to be like, this is not a problem. I think that is especially true in some of our more rural areas where that type of behavior, because I know like my dad, my dad was severely beaten as a child and that was discipline. My mom yeah. was severely abused by her stepdad, my the person who, when he was alive, was my grandpa and still is my grandpa. It's very because much generational. Very much generational. And so there comes a point where, you know, we are, we're repeating, as you've worked with me on, repeating the same patterns that we see over and over and over, and then making a conscious decision where we decide to cut it out and we're just not going to do it anymore. And sometimes that decision is daily while we're homeschooling because COVID and everything else that it becomes, everything is like a little pressure cooker sometimes. And you can default. It's really easy to default to the pattern. It's harder to carve a new, new pathway. And that's why we see generations of abuse continue and continue. And I see it so much with my clients. The crazy thing for my immigration clients is they're being abused by their U.S. citizen spouse. So they don't have status here. They're here undocumented, illegally, whatever term you want to use. And they're married to someone who has status and they use that as leverage over them. My clients, many people are put on an allowance. My, my main client base is Mexican men who are either construction workers or own their own company. So they'll be painters, they'll be... Um, They'll, they'll do landscaping. They'll, they'll own their own business and it's successful. Okay. And they're married to a U.S. citizen woman. And that woman completely controls every aspect of that man's life under the threat of, if you get deported, you'll never see your kids again. And Mexican fathers are very, very loving and involved. Sure. And if, um, and if you don't do the things that I want you to do, including making money and giving it to me. And I'm the only one with status. So I'm the only one who has a bank account and I'll give you a hundred dollar allowance a month. Then I'm going to call ice on you. And this is women doing this to men. Absolutely. And you're telling me this happens a lot this way. Daily. I didn't know. The wild thing is people don't know that this is abuse when I'm talking to clients, I can't even call it abuse because in Mexican culture, much like my upbringing, abuse is severe. I mean, we've had clients who've been beaten with car wires, like the, the wires that hold the battery and the, and the everything to the car. Right. Come out and beat the, the dad will beat the child with that. And that's what they think of when they think of abuse. And they're like, my wife is not abusing me. And so we have to talk to them in a way that relaxes their subconscious that tells them, no, 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 this isn't me. And you need to stay safe. Stop talking to this lady. And we have to talk about, are these the type of things that are happening for you? Because this type of control um, is cruel. Interesting. 
That's really fascinating, Hillary. I did not I did not realize that it was that you know, I mean, typically especially in in relationships we think of uh, the abusive man and we're waking up to the idea that women can be just abusive but this scenario this specific scenario that you're telling me that that's that's kind of running rampant i had never even heard of that before yeah. that's that is really fascinating kind of blows your mind here's what will really rock your world is how us citizen children learn that their parents are undocumented and then they begin. So the abuse can go the other way, right? We can have child abuse and then we can have parental abuse. So once kids realize that if they threaten to call ice on their parents, that their parents will shut up and they can go to the party when they're 16 or go out and I want this dress for me, for my, um, for my prom. I don't care if you don't have enough money, you go out and get it or I'm calling ice on you. It, it is shocking. And these will be parents who the last thing they want to do is say a bad word about their child. You know, no one wants to say, even if it's, even if it's the cold, hard truth, right. say that my child is constantly threatening me and completely controlling me. And if I want to stay here for her younger sister and brother, the eight and the 10 year old, then I got to, I got to get in line and do whatever she wants. And this isn't just 16 year old kids. This is 25 and 30 year old U.S. citizen children who they just figured out they can manipulate their parents and that they have continued to. Now, this isn't every single family, obviously, but this is where I really believe that my background and having observed my mom and and dad and given them a lot of love. And we've had a complete as complete as you can restoration of what happened in the past and um, using that for me as a motivation to sit down and have hard conversations with people and love them and know that every family has its dysfunction. And the more we pretend that we don't, the bigger the animal and the monster becomes, then it helps. I really think that my past has helped give so much meaning. And it's, it's, I'm, I talk about like planting a seed and it's going to be an orchard soon because once we fix one person's immigration status, it's going to completely transform for generations long after I'm dead and gone, long after yeah. my kids are dead and gone. The work we're doing now is going to transform well after all of us are off doing something totally different. Sure. Sure. So let me ask you this. What, because, because a lot, so many, so many children that come from abusive families really have messed up adult lives, like severely, severely dysfunctional adult lives, but you chose a different path for yours. How did you come about the, 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 the consciousness or the decision to do that? And was it conscious or did you, did you start going in this direction for a different reason? And then you kind of woke up later. A little bit of both. I think when I met Sean, I was 19 and I felt very safe with him. I, Sean doesn't have a violent bone in his body. And then when I met his family and saw the, I saw that they weren't dangerous people. And I remember my mom telling me that something that she liked about my dad was his family. So when I'm 19 and I meet Sean's family for the first time and realize, you know, maybe there's something to this and that, that guiding thing that my mom had taught me that, you know, you see someone's family and if that's really dysfunctional, there's probably dysfunction underneath the rug, yeah, you know? Sure. And so at 19, I don't know, Sean was 24. I don't know how we made the decision that lasted. We just had our 15th wedding anniversary. 
Um, I'm really congratulations, proud of by the way. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really proud of us. And you know, growing up, I was a really hardcore Republican, and I was really against gay marriage because I grew up in a really strict Baptist home, and you know, just so many things that were so rule based that made everything about sometimes my own my own core wrong. And then to slowly get to transform, and I'm happy that Sean transformed with me because I am a human rights, um, I don't know, a lover. And I'm, in, I'm so passionate about that. And if someone wants to marry, if a man wants to marry a man, I want to know how I can help be part of that and yeah. help make that happen because it is such a beautiful thing. And I... I just, I I love when people can be who they are meant to be, like who with a capital W, who they are meant to be. And was it, so do you think it was Sean's family that started to like kind of preempt the idea that you started opening your mind then? Like what opened your mind to start really reevaluating your belief system? Because those are hardcore beliefs. I mean, let's call it what it is, right? I mean, I know where I understand where they come from, but generally when you start, when you put those ideas into a small child's mind, they have a hard time shaking those as an adult because it's so absolute. There has to be something behind it where they want to start changing. So how did that happen for you? I think traveling. So I spent, um, you know, the first few years of married life in remote Japan. And okay. so we, where we were stationed with Sean's job and Getting He's in the to, Air Force, yes. He's in the Air Force. Yeah. He's pilot in the Air Force. And getting to be around people who were a lot more worldly than I was. One of our good friends grew up on a hippie commune in California. And, <laughs> you know, becoming so close with him and his wife, and we're still good friends all these years later. It was really great to finally have... Um, have a different perspective. And if I had been, if I had still been in rural Kansas and met that same person, I would have said, you're not like me. We're just never going to get along. Yeah. But instead I was taken out of my natural habitat, completely in culture shock and forced into a new, a new way of being. And in that, I think laid the foundation for maybe I don't know everything. I'm 20, 21 years old. Maybe I don't know everything. And then we just got to travel everywhere. Um, and, you know, we've been to like 50 countries in the past 15 years. And yeah. a lot of that's been with kids. <laughs> so <laughs> hard earned travel. Um, yeah. And I think that that's Great education been, though. Yeah, it really is. There's nothing better for appreciating our country because, you know, we lived in Korea for several years. And, um, you know, there's, there's so much great about Korea. And I really had a wonderful experience there. But... What I can appreciate about my country, our country, coming from places like Korea is, you know, we're not so wrapped up in bloodlines, right? So if, if a, a woman has a baby out of wedlock in Korea, it's going to be hard for her to get married to a Korean man because that Korean baby is never going to be the man's bloodline. And so you have these state-funded orphanages in Korea because moms are basically forced even in 2020 to choose, do I want to have a family or do I want to be single and essentially almost viewed as a social outcast? And so I need to put this baby into a home and I'll visit the baby in this institution as it grows up and then ages out and, you know, moves on with life. And those are the decisions. 
And I love that in the United States, we have step parents, we have step moms and blended families. And I, I refer to myself as a mutt. I don't know where I came from or what I am. And I don't need to know. I'm an American and the, those values are so much bigger than the piece of paper you do or don't have. And that includes my clients, you know, kids who they came to this country as two years old and they stood and pledged allegiance to the same flag that is draped over all of our soldiers' funerals, right? Or yes. over their um, caskets. Yes. Um, you know, being American is is pretty awesome. It is awesome. It is. I'm really glad that you had that experience. Were you able to, to see the diversity about, you know, being in other countries, it's amazing. I know that it woke me up to so many different things when I started to be able to travel and see how other people live and, and really observe. But it's still, you know, I have to say, there are people that do that where their minds are completely closed and it doesn't matter wherever they go. They only see the world through the model that they have for themselves. And you didn't do that. You, you were open. So, there's something there for you that really created that 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 openness. What um, what are you doing with your message right now? As far, because I know that it's really close to your heart to be able to talk to people about this and to benefit the lives of others, really to be in service around others. So what are you doing with this? Where are you going to go with it? Great question. It's Not to put you on the spot. <laughs> I know, it's still kind of brewing, right? So the cool thing is, is every day when I step into a consultation, I know that I'm in the presence of greatness. Someone who walked across a desert to make a better life for themselves, I, I got something to learn from them because I've just had to basically roll out of bed and go to school and put one foot in front of the other and had a lot of opportunity handed to me. Um, and to be able to help my immigration clients give meaning to their pain, right? Like, yes, your 21-year-old U.S. citizen child is being completely abusive of you, and now we can can use your painful past to create a beautiful future, right? So that's kind of the, in the sense of the law firm, the lawyer hat. But, you know, one of the things that I've had as a recurring, I guess it's a memory, it's in the future, but I think it's a memory Okay. Um, is, is really being on stage and talking to a lot of people and really being vulnerable and sharing with people that, you know, everybody that there is, there is a, there is a purpose for everything that we have been through and it can it, in 2020, right? Like the things that people, the loss that people are going through right now, every 27 seconds, someone in the United States dies of COVID and or COVID related complications. And we're going to have a lot of loss and trying to just from this year alone and in going into the future, trying to put meaning to that. I don't want anybody to feel like they have to put meaning to it today. No one should grief yeah. and loss and all those things have to take time. But as you mourn that, um, as you mourn wanting the love of your parents and your parents not knowing how to give that to you and really getting into an abusive situation. Um, wow. I, I wouldn't be who I am if I hadn't experienced that. I am right. grateful for that experience every single day. And what I want to do is help give people not only that connection point of this is the pain, this is the purpose, this is how it further serves me. Life gives 
breath to more life. But I really want to provide people with accountability. I know that right now you're doing um, one of my BFFs is in one of your um, 90 day. You're doing every single day. You're doing a check in. And that type of accountability is extraordinary. People need accountability. Otherwise, you get all jazzed up, rah, rah, rah. And then you go back to your own patterns and your own old processes. Yeah, you know? nothing changes. Exactly. Nothing changes. So for me, it's when I was working with you at Date With Your Dark Side, the big takeaway for me was that all this time I felt like I wasn't special because I know about those cases you were talking about where kids are burned with cigarettes and they're put in a room and, and left abandoned and you know they come out and they've just barely survived. And those types of things, it doesn't have to be because of abuse. It could just be malnourishment across the world. And so you start thinking, I'm really not that special. And on one hand, I'm not, right? We're all here in service of each other. But what I went through and what you went through and what anyone listening goes through, when you think about what your rock bottom moment is, it matters because you can use it to serve so many more people. Yeah. People don't, I don't think people realize how well off you are, especially if you're in this country, you know, two thirds of the world lives on $2 a day. And even at the the worst poverty level here in the United States, we're rich compared to that. Um, But if you don't have anything to compare it to, you don't know. If you're comparing it to a celebrity, you know, you think that you're just the, the, the bottom of the world and actually you're not, you know, you're much wealthier. We're all much wealthier than we realize both emotionally, spiritually, and physically in what we're able to do for other people. And my personal belief is, is that we need to live lives of service. We need to be in service to others so that we can all move forward as a society. I agree. I, and I think that as a collective, a lot could be done. If not, if those like malnourishment, like the lack of food for people across the globe, if we collectively decided one day that we were just going to solve that problem, the problem would be solved, right? Yes. There's no question about it. But if we are so concerned, and this is where we look at like the American dream as a, a pie chart, how big is the pie? Because if I have other people who come in and want to take my piece of the pie of the American dream, then that's depriving me of something. When in reality, the American dream, if we really look at it for what it is, it's limitless. And it, it can is. be shared in those values and um, just getting to be an entrepreneur. You know, people come and make and, and it's because they're helping others. Right. They are able to, uh, able to survive. Otherwise, your business is going to go out of business pretty fast. I agree with you, though. Yeah. Okay. So if you, let's kind of bring this in a little bit. If you, if you had to leave everybody with a successful mind tip, something that you would like to recommend for everybody, something general that people could use that could make a difference in their life. What would that be? Make incremental changes. Incremental right? changes. To say Incremental, why. Small, small changes because, um, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, if you want exponential growth or a quantum leap, those things aren't necessarily by like, you know, getting on the top of a building and I'm going to jump like Spider-Man over to the other building. Right. You talk often um, about how you had just decided, I'm, uh, I don't remember wh- what your first phrase is, but just you're going to show up and do a good job. You're basically going to have a good attitude. Yeah. That is, to anyone else, they might notice your energy is differently or, or is different or that you might be performing better or they're not having to ride your ass about something. Dave, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. right? Exactly, yeah, exactly. Um, 
but it is an incremental shift and it's within yourself. It is the smallest turn of the dial that can make those things happen. When I realized that no one cared whether I spoke Spanish or not, and whether I was communicating through a translator or not, because I don't speak Spanish and 90% of my clients are Spanish speakers. When I just made that shift that they don't care, why do you care? I'm going to, I'm just going to be me and they're going to come or they're not going to come. Yeah. No one could see that around me, but it was just one small shift inside me that now I love it because I'm actually learning Spanish because I have a translator who's sitting next to me and I get a good chuckle out of everybody when I talk and I have this horrible accent, you know? <laughs> so those for me are the big takeaways, you know, every single, um, cause if you try to do like some huge, massive change, um, it, it, you might lose what the purpose of it is. You might yeah. lose why you're doing it to begin with. Um, yeah. But small incremental changes. I don't know what it, I put this in the, the. For, it's like big doors swing on small hinges. Exactly. Yeah. That's a, that's right. a great metaphor because it's really true. It's really true. Pe- people, you know, they don't realize how those small changes, how big of a result they actually get from it. I know when I first did it, it, is, it astounded me. Like I was shocked. I had no idea that my life could change that much by just changing three little things in my attitude. Um, but it was so encouraging when it happened. Like I wanted more. I wanted to know more. I wanted to do more. I wanted to learn. So that's a, it's, that's phenomenal advice. It really is. And I really want to celebrate you for, for stepping out and talking about this. You know, that the things that you told me today about the way this abuse is working, that's a message in and of itself. Like if you went out and got that out on other podcasts, did interviews, you could get on the news. Like I encourage you to take that, let people know, wake people up to what's actually happening, you know, because awareness stops those things. The only time anything's ever eradicated from our society is when people stand up together and say enough, you know, no more. We're not putting up with it anymore. Yeah. It loses its power. I also think that the power of, and this is something where I come back to like, my stuff matters and your stuff matters and Joe Schmo over there, the things that you've been through, it matters is because um, this is a Malcolm Gladwell finding. But when we talk about people in, in an aggregate, so like 1 million people have, I'm just using this as an example, but like let's say 1 million people have drowned in the Mediterranean, fleeing violence in North Africa, trying to get to Italy. Okay. Right. Let's pretend that that's the number. I think it's probably more. But then when that one little boy's body washed up on the, the shore and that picture went out everywhere, we put a face to that name and people acted because of that one little boy and actually putting one person's face to all of this greater struggle and really understanding the true loss of, we can talk about the millions of people who are hungry every day and we see one picture of a person who's going through that, and that's where we can connect with it. And that's why our stuff matters. There are millions of children every day who are being abused by their parents. But when we talk about one person, we can start to bring awareness to it. And that is really where the power is for change. Fantastic. Hillary, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate having you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so grateful. Thanks for listening to the Successful Mind Podcast. And if you like what you heard and you want to know more, go to davidnagel.com forward slash free stuff.